0: This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from allcomic.com, episode 148. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I am Colton. And I'm Lum Ramayasha, And today we're drawing up a really great conversation
1: because we are interviewing translator Jenny McKeon and discussing Akiko Higashimura's Really moving autobiographical manga about her soul-called artist life blank canvas. This manga is just such a really cathartic read if you are an artist, and it is just a great look into how Akashimura became the powerhouse mangaka that she is is beloved as now. And it was great to talk about the series with Jenny, as well as to learn about Jenny's career journey in the manga translation world and her experiences working on the series.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into it into the discussion, but uh, I had a lot of fun going through Blank Canvas and uh, learning a whole lot about Higashimura in the process. This was definitely a really good read, and I really enjoyed our. Our uh, conversation with Jenny in particular. And uh, I hope everyone else out there listening does as well. Absolutely. But now I think it's time for us to paint
1: a picture of the life of a manga translator and the so called artist journey of one Akiko Igashimura and draw up our interview with Jenny McGee and our discussion of Akiko Igashimura's autobiographical manga, Blank Canvas. Mind Canvas is a story that shows us that an artist's experiences are universal no matter what time you grew up in, and artists struggle through the same sort of feelings and experiences just across the years. And also, not only is that a universal experience, but the experience of appreciating art, loving art, and manga is also incredibly universal. What may not be completely universal is, of course, language, which is why we're so grateful for translators for bringing us uh, Japanese manga, translating them into English so we can read and appreciate these stories. And that's why we're so delighted to have on today the translator for Blank Clampus, as well as Bloom Into You, Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid, I'm a Spider, So What, Jenny McKeon. Thank you for coming on.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you. I've been a fan of your work on a ton of other series and your Translator Tea Time podcast from a few years back. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, so it's really great to have you. And of course, I'm a huge fan of Akiko Agashimura, and Princess Jellyfish is one of my favorite. All her manga are my favorites, and Blind Canvas in particular really hits uh, close to home for me. Mm-hmm. Because I mean I also went to art school, so a lot of the experiences that Akashimura recounts and her journey as an artist is mm-hmm. so impactful and relatable to me. Yeah. And also I thought, you know, you would also have a personal connection to the work as you are a comics artist and illustrator yourself.
2: Yeah, it's true. So um I'm also a huge fan of like all of her work. She's amazing and super prolific. Uh so when I First found out a long time ago That she had an autobiographical series I was like, oh that's really cool I gotta get on that, not knowing that I was in For like five volumes of tears
3: (laughs) Oh yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah Higashima is so known for humor and that definitely pervades Lang Canvas too. She has a lot mm-hmm. of great comedic asides and recollections of funny things that happen, but also like every chapter of this manga is dinged with pain and regret and it's, it's just so emotionally raw. It's, it's kind of hard to read, especially if you can relate to those experiences.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. You like let your guard down thinking oh, it's about art and like She's joking around and being a dumb high schooler, and then (laughs) a chapter will end with, like, what do you think of that now, Sensei?
1: Yes, oh my gosh.
2: Oh god, why is she dramatically talking to Sensei? What's happening?
1: She really buries the lead with it, too, because it's not until, like, maybe the end of Volume 3 you get an idea, but then at the end of Volume 4, it's made explicit that, yeah, what Mm happened to Zaka Sensei? But yeah, I guess just to briefly explain, I guess, the overall premise of Blank Canvas before we dive into our interview with you and then the discussion of the series is that Blank Canvas is basically a chronicle of Akihuagashimura's journey to becoming a professional mangaka, starting with her experiences in high school, going and being mentored by a art uh, instructor called Hidaka-sensei. And then it basically also chronicles her relationship with Hidaka-sensei from her high school years to when, I guess, spoiler alert, Hidaka passes away. And this manga is written with that event of Hidaka passing about 10 years in the purview. She wrote the series from 2011 to 2015 in Kokohana. It took a couple of years uh, to release. And then, of course, this manga was finally translated by Seven Seas you, like last year through this year. So mm-hmm. it's been quite a wait for this in English, but I'm so glad to have it. Uh, I guess I'll just relate my experiences with the work when I first discovered it is that, you know, I did discover it long before it was officially translated back, you know, in my own art school days, my own college days. When I had really got into Agashimura's work after finishing Princess Jellyfish, I remember I like immediately tried to find what else was out there of hers that, you know, was available to read. And Blank Canvas was the only thing I think was that was being fan translated. So mm-hmm. when I started reading it, I think about the first three volumes had been fan translated and then. They would release translations for the other volumes about a month after their Japanese release date or so. So I followed the last two volumes as those came out. But, you know, mm-hmm. it was definitely very impactful to read while I was in art school the story about Higashimura's struggles trying to get in and then being in art school and then a- what happened afterward. And mm-hmm. I think I'll also say that I appreciated at the time. But, like, in retrospect, now being, like, two years removed from graduating art school, like, I appreciated so much more, like, not only experiences that she had, because there were some things that, you know, happened to her that hadn't happened to me yet. But now that I'm out, I can be, like, saying, oh, my gosh, now I can relate to this even harder. And I feel like, uh, you know, as the years goes by, there's just going to be more and more to appreciate the more, like, life experiences you know, yeah. that I can accumulate and kinda relate to hers.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I guess I wanted to ask you like when was your first exposure to Blank Canvas and, and Kiko Ogashimura's work in general?
2: Um let's see. It might have honestly been when I first saw uh like the Princess Jellyfish anime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um ink. And then I read that manga and as you say I immediately looked for what other manga of hers um was available. I think at the time, what I must have been in college. Um, mm. So I may have looked up the uh, fan translations, but at that time I was studying Japanese, so I read most of it in Japanese, like with a lot more difficulty than how I read it uh, as I was translating it
3: <laughs> today. Mm.
2: But um, the emotions definitely get through.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I think there's there were probably some of the more difficult parts about like art school and... Like art terms and things like that might have gone over my head at the time, but I still was very moved by it, especially being also, I mean, I was not an art student in college. I did take a couple art classes and thought about doing the art minor and decided that I was not good enough and just did not do that. (laughs) Um, But reading that, I was like, man, and it's true that each time I've read it, I've been at like a different stage in my life and related to her at different stages in her life. I do remember being a high school kid who was like <laughs> full of myself and my. was gonna be the greatest artist ever and also a writer and like maybe also like a marine biologist
3: or something, you
1: yeah. know? Oh, I, I think every young artist has those delusions of grandeur. Like you're gonna do something super amazing, you're super talented, everyone's gonna love everything, and then like. <laughs> of course, like reality, and then adult problems seep in. And then, yeah, mm-hmm. as the explores, it's a lot of different challenges that test your confidence that you have to powers through. Mm-hmm. But before we dive more into the work, I want to trace back your own journey as a translator, as an artist yourself in the comics you make. And I think the place I want to start is like where was uh your first introduction to manga? How did you get into manga?
2: So I actually had to really rack my brains here <laughs> for a long time ago. But <laughs> I want to say I think my first introduction into really like Japanese media in general was stumbling on Yu-Gi-Oh on oh. like Saturday morning on WD Kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And, um The Poor Kids Dub, the famous one. Um And immediately just being like, what is this? This is so cool. Their eyes are so cool. Uh,
0: (laughs) Their hair is so cool.
2: Yeah, their Mm -hmm. hair is so (laughs) gravity-defying. So I immediately had to know more, and soon wound up finding out that there was a comic and that it was in a magazine, because at the time, we still had Shonen Jump as an actual print magazine in English. Oh, yeah. Um, Not that... Digital Shonen Jump isn't also great, because i am subscribed to that as well, but, uh, so yeah, at the time, I think we, I dragged my mom to Walmart and found a Shonen Jump issue, and was completely confused, of course, because it's all, like, in the middle of the story, but, uh, I was pretty much hooked from there. I wound up, I think, we spent a lot of time in the manga section in borders, and again, like, I didn't really know what was what, and there wasn't, either there wasn't as much information on the internet at the time, or I just, like, didn't have access to it, because I was probably like 12 or
3: 13, Mm -hmm. um,
2: if not younger. So I kind of just picked up whatever had a cool-looking cover. I remember buying, I was into Yu-Gi-Oh, of course, and then from there, Inuyasha, because I was like, oh, it's another cool white-haired character, what's that? Um... I've had a type from a very young age.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> so, I picked up Eviaja, uh, a lot of Clamp stuff, Jowits, Angelic Lair. I bought Ranma until my parents looked inside of that and decided I was not buying Ranma anymore. But oh <laughs> no! <laughs> um, the same thing with Chovits, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> Demon Diaries is the other one I remember being really into.
0: Mm. I find it funny how there are parents out there who 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 will actually bother to look into like hey so what is my kid reading anyway
1: well i think Um, that's that's really probably the responsible thing parents would do yeah
2: no my parents (laughs) were very involved and actually my dad wound up getting really into manga and anime and going to conventions with us and stuff that's awesome Uh, my mom didn't really get it but she's very supportive
0: did he? Did he get really into Inuyasha like that one uh, oh, robot, the chicken, robot sketch? chicken sketch? <laughs> oh my god!
2: <laughs> no, but he he got really into like Evangelion. Ah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. He actually cosplayed Gendo Whoa. and became somewhat famous for it at Anime Boston because he was there cosplaying him every year, which is hilarious because he's a great dad,
1: probably the worst dad. <laughs> Complete one eighty from Gendo. It sounds like
0: <laughs> yeah. That, that's but pretty. Yeah, awesome. I guess I
2: was really into shonen more when I was first getting into it. I mean, I was also in my like not like other girls phase, so I was sort of secretly interested in shoujo, but didn't really want to read it. So I pretty much missed the Sailor Moon phase. A girl mm-hmm.
0: into shonen? You don't say. I know. <laughs> it's
1: not
2: I like mean, that's was Yu Yu Show not supposed to just be about a bunch of hot guys
3: for, like, personal watch?
1: Oh, no, it definitely is. I it think I missed the memo is. on that one.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so when did you start exploring more shojo work, then?
2: Uh, good question. Um, I mean, I mentioned Cliff. Mm-hmm. I really yeah, like yeah. Angelic Lair. So I guess, and Angelic Lair is kind of, like, action so maybe that was the sort of gateway into more of that stuff because then I look at their other stuff and I'm like oh but these are just people like blushing and misunderstanding each other um but I really liked it and I eventually subscribed to shoujo beat as well mm. I still have a few issues of that they were printed in colored ink they were so cool
1: yeah um, like the magenta ink
2: yeah yeah so by then I embraced my love of shoujo as well
3: I guess maybe Demon
2: Diaries, that might count as a Shoujo. That was my accidental uh, first glimpse at BL. Ooh, Because I'm pretty sure I thought that the main character was a girl. Although Demon Diaries, I think, is not japanese Hmm. It might be manhwa. I would have to look again. It's kind of an obscure one, but I remember it being really
1: warm. Awesome. Yeah, it does look like it was a manhwa. But yeah.
2: All right, yeah.
0: Did, uh, did Tokyopop release it by any chance? It looks like. I mean, the they're team right team. on the spine. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's awesome. So if, if that was your first BL work, what was your first Yuri work? Because I know you're also super into Yuri, and you wrote a great piece for it for Anifem a few years back.
3: I
2: know. It's so funny because, again, you know, this is a manga podcast and not a deep personal issues podcast. <laughs> but I feel like I had a lot of like internalized misogyny and also maybe homophobia, so I was a little like hesitant to get into that stuff, which is hilarious because it's my whole entire thing. <laughs> now. Uh,
1: yeah, you translate so many Yuri series. I mean, again, Bloom into You, Kobayashi's Dragon Maid, Hana and Hina, mm-hmm. like so many great titles, big titles too.
2: Yeah, no, I've been really lucky because I got Dragon Maid before it got, and well, Dragon Maid in Bloom into You before they got anime adaptations, so. Um, you know, hashtag into it before it was cool. <laughs> but maybe my first Yuri, I don't know, does Dot Hack sign count? That's uh, like a secret Yuri.
1: Interesting. I mean, I have to watch that then because I never got into Dot Hack a whole lot.
2: Yeah. Well, this is then a spoiler for like a early two thousand series, but I think at the end you find out that Tsukasa's player is also a girl. Hmm. And so it was secretly Yuri the whole time.
3: Nice. Because
2: they've kind of got a relationship with, I want to say, her name is Subaru.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other than that, first Yuri, I don't know. Because I feel like it didn't really come over here as much as BL at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Even when I first started translating, there was much less Yuri on the shelves than there is now. Which is awesome. I mean, awesome that it's on there now. Not awesome that I couldn't. I feel like I couldn't find it in when I was like in high school I probably wouldn't have just stumbled on it on the shelves that we might stumble on DL mm-hmm. so it was more like having my own little Yuri headcanons about series that did not actually have any like crew
1: content in it but
2: you know isn't that how we all get by on those programs?
1: Oh definitely I mean what were your some of your favorite ships then?
2: Oh gosh like early days? Yeah, yeah. Of manga. Um kind of talking to believe. I was mostly reading, like, extremely street shonen, shoujo <laughs> at the time. And shonen where you, like, don't even have two female characters to put together.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the boys usually have more chemistry with each other than with the girls.
3: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: I mean, after from Entry yeah. to Show. A lot of Hiei Karama, a lot of Yusuke Kuwabara.
2: Oh, my gosh. Um My best friend in, like, middle and high school was very into Hiei Kurama and um, Kenshin and Sanosuke.
4: Mm, yeah. Uh, That's a good one.
2: So, actually, I think the first um, female characters that I remember drawing a lot of shippy art of was, like, our own OCs. (laughs) Which, there's probably a lot to unpack there, but, you know. But, yeah, she would literally, like, print out, um, like, BL fanfic and bring it to me at school, like stapled together, <laughs> 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 to try to win me over to her side. What well,
1: kind of worked. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> but, so, yeah. you got into manga, you know, from an early age, and then what got you interested in maybe learning Japanese, and getting into translating?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously that, my interest in manga, and, and, and like Japanese games, music, etc. Um, like many of us. But I also just was always really interested in languages in general. I actually studied Russian in high school. Mm. So I had an interest in like unusual languages beyond like Spanish, French, and Latin. No, it would really have probably been more practical to learn one of those. Well, Latin's not practical. But, you know. So I think at the time when I first went to college, which I went to UMass Amherst, partly because they have a pretty well-renowned Japanese program. Um, My plan was to be probably an English major with, like, a Japanese minor. And then as I was studying it, I was way more interested in the Japanese classes. Not that I wasn't interested in the English classes, but um, I also took a linguistics class for, like, a general education requirement that wound up being so interesting that I Eventually switched over to the Japanese linguistics track. Hmm. As opposed to the Japanese language and version track. I couldn't tell you very much about linguistics at this point. (laughs) But it was really cool.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So.
2: Um, Sorry.
1: No, no, I was going to say, so learning Japanese, you know, in college, from there, like, what got you interested in, like, doing translation work?
2: I mean, it's funny because I feel like there was a period where I sort of fell out of it a little bit, out of, like, manga and anime. And then I got back into it in a big way, obviously. And was always interested in translating it, but didn't really know how one went about that, and if it was, like, a viable career or not. So I was really not at all sure what I was going to do with my Japanese degree. Um, Mm. And was also starting to take more of an interest in art and be, like, should I try to go that route? As if that's any more practical. But um, eventually, about a year after I graduated, as I was still like working full time at like an art store, actually, and just kind of waffling around trying to figure out what to do with myself, I stumbled on the manga translation battle. Yeah. So that was 2014, and as you probably know, one of the series that year was Joe, which was one of my favorites. Um, I love the anime and my one of my best friends in college had brought back all of the volumes
0: in nice. Japanese,
2: like of the manga, when he studied abroad there, so I was really into those. so the prospect of translating that I didn't really think I was going to actually get the chance to do it beyond the contest, especially because I was you now a good year out of college, and I was a little rusty, mm-hmm. but I decided to do it sort of just for fun. And I think it may have been that attitude that kind of helped because I was like, well, since I'm not going to win, I'll just like get really goofy. And I'm going to like turn this, uh, I think I like turned a poem into a limerick or something.
3: <laughs> um,
2: just really fun things because speech Joe is so fun and goofy anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then uh, early the next year, I think, I found out that I had actually won and I got to translate the first three volumes of Nichiro for um, the Japanese company, because it wasn't licensed at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And as I was working on that is actually when it got licensed, and there was a bit of a a period of uncertainty when I didn't know, like, are they going to use my translation? Are they going to hire me for the rest of it? Um, And I got in touch with Vertical, and eventually we obviously wound up reaching an agreement where I got to translate the rest of it.
1: Yeah, and that's awesome, because now you do, like, basically the author's other works as well. You did Helvetica Standard, and you're doing City.
2: Yeah, uh, I love their works so much. Like, Hulli K. G. is really such, like, a master of comics and comedy, and um, everyone should read City. That's my obligatory City plug. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing it up, because I really love that series.
1: Mm-hmm, Yeah. I mean, I want to dig more into it, too, because I do really love everything that I've read of theirs. They have, like, a great comedic style. Mm-hmm. But also, it, that must have been a difficult series to translate, too, especially when it gets into a lot of punny territory.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah, Nishio is quite a um, trial by fire of a first series, I think. It's so full of extremely Japanese jokes. Um, extremely, like, specific cultural references, not only to Japan, but even to, like, Junma, the area where it's set. And yes, lots of puns, and that sort of thing. I really love puns. Mm -hmm. I've always loved puns, so I find them to be a fun challenge most of the time. Trying to come up with something that has a similar meaning, but is still funny. Because I'm not a huge believer in, like, jokes that you need to read the translation notes to know why it's funny. Mm Mm-hmm and also it's vertical who i think lean more towards this should be accessible even to people who aren't like huge nerds right um, which is really hard with nichijo <laughs> <laughs> i feel like if i went back now i could probably or i would probably do some things differently but um, it was really fun and like very surreal both because nichijo is surreal and because it was so wild that i was getting to do that and actually getting paid
3: for it
1: Mm -hmm. do you have like any particular like moment in Nichigo that was like the most challenging to translate
3: hmm oh my
2: gosh there's so many most challenging to translate I definitely remember a lot of times that I just sort of got up and left the office for a bit because I was like I don't know what I'm going to do about this but (laughs) I'd be hard pressed to name a specific moment off the top of my head.
1: I think this might have been from an old translator tea time, but I remember like, there was a particular one in Volume 2 I remember you mentioning about, like, there was some pun involving a character's homework.
3: Oh,
2: the one with the key? The key one?
1: I mm-hmm. think? I'm trying to remember, but basically you... If I remember correctly, like, you changed the joke slightly to say that, uh, what was it? Oh, me and my homework have no chemistry?
3: Oh, ha. That's
2: (laughs) fine. Yeah, I do remember that. But now that you mentioned that, I just remembered something else. And I have to look at what I actually did. But I remember there was a pun that I thought I had a good grasp on. And then I turned the page, and there was like an image of the specific Japanese pun. So whatever I came up with wasn't going to work because the image wouldn't make sense. And it was something to do with like a keyboard, mm. um, and like the weather. Maybe I'll have to flip through afterward and see if I can find it. Okay. But there's a lot of stuff like that where there's like a pun with an accompanying visual that makes it a lot harder. Because if there wasn't like a specific image. Then I could just come up with a similar joke, but if there's, you know, like a cow in the background or something very specific like that, I have to figure out a way to make that make sense. Right. That still happens a lot in the city, but I'm Mm. getting uh, getting the hang of it. And usually what I do is come up with my best attempt at making it funny and relevant, and then I'll leave a little note for the editor being like, this is the original joke, this is why I did it this way, you have a better idea, by all
3: means.
1: But that presents an interesting question then like if you have to also keep in mind like what works with the art about you know with light novels you also translate light novels does that give you some more freedom that there isn't like accompanying visuals to you know be a little more creative in translating those or
2: Yeah it really does um that is one advantage i think when you're translating light novels if there's like a japanese term that is maybe like a specific kind of food or something. Because you're not constricted to the art that's on the page and like the speed bubbles and stuff, you can easily do a whole, like, pretty much add an entire sentence or, you know, a description being like, um, recently there was one that was like about Oyakodon, mm. uh, which, you know, is also a fun Japanese word because it's literally like parent and child bowl because Mm -hmm. you have chicken and eggs within it, which is kind of messed up, but also pretty funny. (laughs) Um, And if it was a manga that had like a gag about that, then that would be sort of hard. But since it was a light novel, I could be like, uh, she had made Oyakodon. I looked at the chicken and the egg in the bowl of rice or something and explain what it is without having to do a little, like, aside or note in the back of the book or something.
1: Awesome. And I guess in general, do you find light novels or manga the most difficult to translate? I mean, I'm sure light novels are just just a huge volume of text, so that takes longer. Just
2: by the sheer size and, like, time investment, light novels are definitely harder. They have made manga feel easier by comparison. (laughs) Because even as we're am like, look at all these pictures, this is great. Mm -hmm. Aside from moments like that where I'm like, wow, I wish I had space to elaborate on this. I think the one big difficulty for manga is um, fitting things into speech Mm bubbles, especially as I get to know more letters and also since I draw comics myself and have lettered comics, I'm always very aware of like, this is a very small speech bubble, and since it's Japanese, it's a very like vertical speech bubble. And how are they going to cram a really long word in a really long sentence into this little bubble? So I try to keep things as uh, succinct as possible for manga.
1: Yeah, that definitely must be a difficult with relatively wordy manga like Blank Canvas, which is full of a lot of text. And I definitely Mm -hmm. want to give props to Liz Blakesley, the letterer, for this series, because I think they did a really great job with it.
2: Oh, yeah. The lettering came out really good.
1: Mm -hmm. But actually, on the subject of Blank Canvas, like, what were some of the more challenging parts of this series to translate?
3: Um,
2: Like you said, there are definitely a couple of parts that get really into I remember a lot of explanations about how like Japanese college and specifically art school works yeah that were pretty challenging
1: yeah. I imagine you had to do a lot of research probably on very you know specific to Japan things especially maybe yeah obscure pop culture references like the morning show that has the clock character you know come on screen and say it's five oh, yeah, fifty-five. and she
2: makes a lot of uh, <laughs> references to like 80s and 90s, like, music artists and stuff that were popular. Flippers,
1: guitar. hmm mm-hmm.
2: But I think the hardest thing, possibly, in Blank Canvas was the covers of the magazines. Oh. Uh, like, Bouquet and the other manga magazines. Because they're all based on actual covers, obviously.
1: Oh, my oh, gosh. Yeah. So you had well, to research those specific covers to, yeah, like, find... I'm
2: out here Googling in Japanese... Um like trying to figure out which issue from which year it is and therefore like which artists are featured in it on this teeny tiny kanji that I can barely read. So I actually lucked out and found a page that's like it lists pretty much all of the stories that have ever appeared in Bouquet and their artists' names. So if I could just make out like one or two of the kanji in the artist's name, I could sort of search down that page. And be like, oh, this must be this person who published like two short stories ever in some cases. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the poor letterer had to squeeze all that onto the
3: covers.
2: (laughs) So I'm
1: sure it was tough for them too. Yeah, I thought that was so amazing that like all those covers had translated text. Like I Mm -hmm. was paying attention to that detail. And like they were so small too that like you could read it, but it was like. I-, I thought it was amazing that you were able to, like, squeeze that in onto those covers. I Like, again, props to both you and the letterer for that.
2: Yeah, that was very tough. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad people noticed that and appreciated it. It was also really fun, you know, to look up all of these old magazine covers and stuff. But yeah, it was pretty tough.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I imagine there has to be a lot of research that had to go into it, considering, like, this is going back, like, the stuff she is referencing from like the '90s, like thirty years ago at this point, twenty twenty.
2: Yeah, like in the end, I was very lucky that there are some very devoted fans of that particular magazine who have made a really thorough list of all of the artists and stories that have appeared in it.
1: Yeah, that's a awesome. You were able to find a resource like that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Those are those are the best uh, moments, or you know, among the best when you find a really thorough resource for something really specific. Mhm. And you'll sometimes I'll like send it to other translators and be like, "Guys, look what I found," even though it's like only really helpful for that very specific situation. It's like a list of, I don't know, sometimes it's like a list of slang for a really specific area of Japan or something
3: like that.
1: Oh yeah, that was another thing I wanted to ask is that I definitely noticed like some characters would have dialects. Like for me, Higashimura's dad stood out in particular because he would use, you know, "ya" yeah, and "your," like very informal way of speaking. So, like, yeah. how was the difficulties of like kind of matching the dialects for different characters too?
2: Yeah, her she's from Miyazaki. Yeah, so yeah. The dialect there was is not as like thick as say Osaka then, but I was trying to replicate it without it being super distracting. There's always this is always an ongoing conversation in translation because I don't think people are as quick to accept anymore. like, so I gave them a Southern American accent and called it a day because um, <laughs> that can be like really distracting. And you want the American readers to have the same like reading experience as a Japanese reader would. So
3: mm-hmm.
2: like, for instance, if you're reading a character with a dialect, it should be noticeable that the character has a dialect, but you shouldn't, like, be struggling to figure out what they're saying. Unless they're oh, also yeah. incomprehensible in Japanese, which is right. occasionally the case.
1: Mm. But it makes sense also geographically if you want to try and convey, like, the same idea to, like, you know, especially U.S.-based readers. Because, like, I believe at one point when she's going to do her interviews uh, at an article, she's like, okay, I'm going to show them, you know, my sudden girl charms and stuff like that. <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, it's fun with her, too, because when she is in her hometown of Miyazaki, sometimes Akiko will, like, slip into more of a dialect than she uses, like, at
3: college. Mm-hmm.
2: But yeah, I mean, Miyazaki is also in the South, if I remember correctly. So I think it was accurate in that way.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I guess speaking to, you know, the time needed to do research and like figure out how to translate difficult things like what is like your daily life as a translator like what do you find yourself like you know fragmenting your daily routine into in terms of like how you approach translating different series
3: um yeah
2: so first of all i use a planner i use a japanese planner called the hovanichi Weeks, um which pretty much dictates my entire life so I'll, you know, do a daily schedule, I will kind of like, calculate out how much I need to do with each series to get it done by the deadline, and ideally be able to take off a weekend. So I do that pretty much when I'm starting a project usually, so for the day-to-day I pretty much just like open my planner and I'm like, okay, today I have to do 10 pages of You, Blue and, Blue, and then like say, 7,000 words of whatever light novel I'm
3: working (laughs) on.
2: Um, Characters? I don't know. So I pretty much, I try to wake up around the same time, and you know, like, obviously showering, like, get dressed as if you're going to an actual job. Probably even more important now, but like, it's important to give yourself a sense of like, division between work time and, like, not work time. Right. And I'm lucky that I have an office that helps me that distinction. So, you know, I'll get up and go about my morning routine, maybe do a ring fit if I'm feeling really ambitious, and then get to work on whatever. Usually I try to do the harder project in the morning because that's when I'm feeling sharpest. By the afternoon, I'm, like, already thinking about wanting to, you know, play video games or whatever I'm going to do afterwards. But so I'll work on one project and then have like a lunch break for an hour or so and then shift to the other project is my ideal schedule for a day because usually I'm working on at least two things at any given time. Yeah, and then, you know, I try to be done with work by, like, five or so. I set a hard line of, like, after six, I am not going to work no matter how much is still left to do. And sometimes that time is later. And I know for a lot of other people, it's later if you're really busy. But, you know, downtime is important.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: It definitely sounds like you had a stronger uh, work-life balance than Higashimura in her early career than, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Working late into night without even realizing it. Of course, nowadays, as she explores, like, with her new studio and with her assistants and stuff. And, of course, taking care of her son, she has more of a regimented routine so Mm -hmm. i think that's another really thing to uh really keep in mind if you're doing any sort of freelance work is to kind of make sure you maintain a consistent schedule for yourself that you can like focus on your work but also give yourself recreation time and you know maintain that balance
2: yeah it's really important and it makes a world of difference that i think you don't always realize like the difference between a saturday where you work for two hours and then relax. And a Saturday where you just relax and don't think about work at all is, like, really big. Mm -hmm. And you need those total days off once in a while to, like, reset your brain or you will burn out. And I have burned out. And, yeah, that's also something that's very relatable in Blank Canvas. Um, Because I am also not, like, a particularly disciplined person. I have a very short attention span. Um, Oh, same here. (laughs) But as she says... Um, I really like the part where she's like when people are truly desperate
1: Oh yeah. They can really Oh my god, just like such overcome a... their
2: limits and she's like working full time and she's drawing all through the night and I'm like yes. I'm not on that level but
1: Oh my gosh.
2: It reminded me definitely of like I was there was a time when I was working two like retail or food service jobs and also like translating afterward. In the, mm-hmm. Like, in the period before I was able to transition to full-time, which I think was in 2016 or so. And that, like, that drive that comes from, I really don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty powerful.
1: Oh, yes, like, so, so related with that so hard. Like, just that sense of, okay, I... I'm going to power through and do this thing I really want to do, even though I have no time for it because I just want to escape this thing I don't want to do. And like the contrast of like when she was in art school and she had the time to do that thing, she didn't take advantage of it. But now when she has no time, she like, mm-hmm. and she has to, she has, uh, she's that's going so for real it. As well. Yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, I want to speak now, I guess, to like maybe other experiences like of Higashi Morris and this manga that you, you might have related to, like, cause. I mean, uh, I also want to touch upon, like, you are, of course, a comics artist and illustrator. And you have done a lot of work for anthologies and stuff. So, like, Mm -hmm. in terms of those experiences and, uh, you know, your experiences as a freelancer, like, what are some other things in the manga that, like, really spoke to your, like, own experiences?
2: Man, absolutely. Um, Again, I think it really starts with her high school experience and that idea of, like, when you had all the time in the world... And did not draw a single thing. Mm-hmm. I did draw a lot in high school. Yeah. And as I mentioned, I had a close friend who, you know, we drew together and we made comics together and we were both going to be like huge comic <laughs> artists.
1: Who, Your like, own Fatami. Wrote
2: novels and also got our, like, drew our own adaptations of our novels and presumably mm-hmm. got mm-hmm. like
3: adapted into anime and stuff.
1: Oh yeah, you had like your own friend circle, like is. They drew that putsoon comic. They bonded over their oh my god, yes. nerdy I had, a,
2: I had one of those like fairly awful web comics about like me and my friends just hanging out. Um, <laughs> oh god! But other than that, like other than the web comic and the comics that I did with my friends, I really never finished anything, and mm. that is a lifelong problem that i still struggle with no
1: i i, so I get can excited
2: relate. i start a project i get bored and distracted i start mm. a different project <laughs> the other project doesn't get done um and so you mentioned anthologies that is really one of the best ways that i know of to make myself actually finish a project is having a deadline and a reason to finish it so usually i also have like comic conventions that I sometimes go to so it's like okay I have to finish this comic by the time this convention comes so I can print it and sell it and obviously right now where I don't have as much as that it's a lot harder to motivate myself to finish anything
3: mm-hmm.
2: but yeah so that is one aspect that you definitely see some of that in blank canvas and then like uh, feel your pain <laughs> Um, let's see There's also, of course, like her college experience when she has an art slum. Mm -hmm. My experience was very different because I wasn't an art student. um, But I also was, because I wasn't an art student, I was like, well, why would I even bother drawing? Because, like, I'm not good at it and not going to be able to study it, so I'm just going to stop. And then sometime around um, junior year is when I met my Sophomore and junior year is when I met my partner, who is also very into comics, Mm -hmm. and sort of we inspired each other to start drawing a lot of comics again. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was always, I think, drawing little diary comics and stuff, but never had the confidence that I was really going to go anywhere with that. And it wasn't until right before I graduated that I was like, wait, I actually love doing this and I want to go into comics. Um, And I drew a comic actually for my thesis in the Japanese program i don't know how i got away with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i read that that was really really cool oh gosh i forget that that's still a thing people can read <laughs> but yeah actually um that is the main crossover between my uh translation and artwork is that i do comics about translation so i did that one obviously for my thesis and then i've drawn a couple of follow-ups including um like translation that i drew a few years ago I'm actually trying to work on a book, like, collecting all of them, plus some new comics, to sort of round it all out. That was going to be for shows this year. But as soon as everything started, you know, hitting the fan, work on that sort of took a backseat a little bit. But I'm going to try and get back to working on
3: that.
1: that'd be awesome. Yeah, if you could, like, release a book next year with all your comics.
2: Yeah, that's the hope. One other thing in Blank Canvas... There's a lot of relatable stuff, <laughs> in kind of, and especially now. Well. Mm. At any rate, um, there's a lot of, especially I remember a part in Volume Four where she talks about like her one of her bad habits is that she can never.
1: Oh my god! Yeah, like be
2: upfront with people. Yeah, I like had to lie down. I was like, "Do not oh. call out like this." Oh, um, yeah. that was really rough. And there are a couple of parts like that. It's sometimes seems as though she has... Well, not seems. At times, she seems to have a very strong sense of, like, self-loathing.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's... And
2: obviously so regret, regret about how she acted when she was younger, but, um...
1: Yeah, like, every chapter now, she's like, oh my god, I was so stupid as a kid. What was I doing? I mm-hmm. want to go back and punch myself. And she draws herself traveling in a time machine <laughs> to go back and punch herself for complaining not having enough time. to so funny. <laughs> so great.
2: Yes, that's, that's definitely... <laughs> I feel like I either have drawn that or at least, like, thought about it, or There are plenty of times when I would like to have done that. Um, yeah. Especially, like, 13 year old me being like, but Yuri's gross. Girl. Oh. <laughs> Come on. But yeah. Yeah. And I- currently, um, my father in law is actually, uh, undergoing chemotherapy and stuff. So. Mm-hmm. now when i that wasn't going on when I was translating it, but when I look back at the volumes now, uh there's a new level of um, resonating, I guess,
1: yeah, I mean, I'm so sorry to hear that, uh but yeah, I mean, a part of this manga, what makes it so like painfully powerful is that it's also kinda. Kagashimura kind of dealing with the debt of someone she's loved and like still dealing with those feelings like 10 years after the fact and exploring them through this manga and making like a tribute to him through it. And like mm-hmm. her way of also like apologizing to him by kind of telling his story through her relationship to him and just revealing what a, you know, awesome person he was because he was like an obscure artist. In even Miyazaki, like, he lived, like, an hour away from where this, you know, main city was, like, in, like, this shack that was, like, a repurposed shed, basically. Mm -hmm. And so he was just, like, a small-time local, you know, arts uh, instructor who he didn't, like, take, like, a lot of uh, payment for like, his services, and he actually did a lot of instructional work for free, basically, like, overtime Mm -hmm. to help students, because he just really cared about art. He was really passionate about helping young budding artists. And so, like, he left a huge impact on her. And, yeah, I also could relate to, like, her feelings. Like, there's, there's this moment where, of course, when she, like, comes and visits him for, like, the first time after, like... He told her that he only had four months to live, and she's like surprised that oh, he's actually doing very well.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, he's invincible. Like I think that he will, you know, still be healthy and strong. And so she kind of leaves after that, and she doesn't think anything of it. But when she and she describes it like going to the Dragon Palace and like you know, partying and oh, having a yeah, fun time, and then coming so back good. and yeah, and like everything has changed because when she comes back that next time, you know, he's bedridden. And he's become Mm -hmm. so weak and frail, but like he's still drawing. And that's the incredible thing is that like, even like, as he's so sick, he's still to the very end drawing. But like, I -hmm. I had related to that experience, you know, because I also had a similar thing happen with my grandfather when I was young. And it was Mm -hmm. hard to see him like that because he was, when I was very young, you know, a very strong a uh, person like he seemed very healthy, and it, kind. Of, he was kind of like a docility, and like you know how strict he was, how intimidating he was, but like still, you know, considerate and cared in his own way. And then like, you know, uh, towards the end of his life, like he he was bedridden and he was so weak, and it was just so hard to see him like that. So that is yeah. just another aspect of it that really hits.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry you went through that, but she really does do an amazing job of conveying that kind of thing Yeah, Um, and making a really amazing, like, I feel like when you finish, or even as you're reading it, and when you finish, you're like, wow, I wish I could have met him, and Mm -hmm. I feel like that is maybe what she was trying to accomplish, Yeah, um, and maybe atone a little bit for her perceived, you know, what she didn't do while he was still alive.
1: Yeah, I think so, especially because she recounts, like, all the missed opportunities she had to spend more time with Hidaka Sensei and do more to help him. Like, one of the most heartbreaking moments is when Hidaka, of course, comes to visit her at college. Oh, my God. And, like, she's embarrassed to have him visit her, partly because of her own, like you know insecurity and imposter syndrome like you know she's not really doing well there so he do- she doesn't mm-hmm. want him to see like that she's not been doing that great but also she's embarrassed to like have other people like see him and kind of break the illusion she has made for of herself of like being oh i'm so chill and popular and like uh cool like i i'm i i Don't try hard on purpose. You know, I just came to art school on a whim. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. that kind of lie she told her friends. And so she, like, kind of shooes him away when he's starting to meet her teacher. And then, like, she gets mad at him after, like, he's trying to give her instruction about, like, a piece she's drawing in her uh, art classroom. And then she, like, just leaves him at her apartment to go and just stay with her boyfriend. Because she she just wants to spend time with him. And The next morning, you know, he just leaves and she sees the bottle of like wine and then she realizes yeah, like what?
2: really expensive uh,
1: yeah oh
2: uh, that part is so hard to read
1: because yeah she realizes oh what he really wanted to do was like he wanted to like just meet her friends and like spend time just talking about art and
2: mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah because like you said he's you know kind of in the middle of nowhere so for him being surrounded by other artists is probably really rare yeah and a really cool opportunity
1: and you see that later in the series when, you know, her boyfriend Nishimura does come to Miyazaki to visit her and they visit Sensei. And then they spend time talking about, like, all these, like, sculptors they really love. And, like, that leaves Hikashi like, Murph like, left out. But mm-hmm. her boyfriend, like, later remarks, man, like, he, I wish I had a teacher like him when I was, you know, studying. Maybe if I had a teacher like that guy who was so passionate, like, maybe I wouldn't have to take in, you know, a gap year. wouldn't have taken me so long to get into art school like mm-hmm. he was just so generous which at his time and so passionate about art and you know he cared so much about his students like whenever they failed he was like it's okay spend another year you know take a gap year you'll draw for nine hours a day and you'll get in next year like mm-hmm. that's another just amazing amazing moment but yeah, yeah, I think I re- we should like really get into the discussion of the series, then, like, because uh, there's just so much to talk about. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I want to like circle back to you, Colton. This was your first time reading the series. I want to hear like your initial impressions, and then go from there. Like, what stood out to you about the
0: series? Um, I, I know I haven't really like said too much throughout the podcast here, and that's kind of partly because like I I unfortunately don't uh I don't really share a lot of the same experiences uh Higashimura as someone who is not an artist is and hasn't never really gone to art school but like um I don't know I mean just from you know an average reader's perspective I guess like I really I really just like learning about Higashimura's career and like how she got her start just in general and I guess something I really appreciate about uh, this work in particular is that I guess I wasn't expecting such a personal story. Cause, you know, a, a very like small fear of mine when it comes to these like autobiographical works is like, you know, and I mean, it's, it's totally up to, uh, the author, artist, creator, whatever you want to call them and how much they want to talk about, you know, their personal lives and stuff. But like, you know, uh, the, there's always this small fear of mine where it's like, you know, oh, well, h- how much can they actually go in the detail about, like, uh, about their experiences or, like, you know, like, uh, I, I don't know how much, like, how much does editorial interfere with, you know, what they can publish or whatnot? I guess I just don't, I don't really have, uh, I don't have a very good idea about, like, how a lot of that works. But I mean, like, I, I, I get the sense reading this that, like, Uh, that Higashimura is being very, very honest about her experiences and, like, how Mm -hmm. she felt at the time, and I just like how genuine her feelings come across, like, I think it makes her work, uh, not only that much more interesting, but, like, enjoyable as, like, just, like, a story on its own. I mean, obviously, like, the stuff that she is recounting is, like, they're all things that, like, happened- you know, but it it mm. still it still makes for like an interesting story. It's not too like it doesn't feel like I'm just like reading a wiki page about Higashimura or whatever. Right. She goes into
1: detail and she's like painfully honest about herself and the kind of person she was when she was younger and how she thought at the time. And looking back at her old self in retrospect, not being afraid to say, hey, I messed up back then. I was a bad person in this moment for doing this and sometimes i think she's too harsh on herself but other yeah. times you can understand where she's coming from especially considering like where her story ended up and like looking back at like how she interacted with Hadaka Sensei in the times that she took him for granted that she regrets for sure but, mm-hmm. I mean, Hagashima her, herself mm-hmm. is also such an interesting person. Like, her learning how to use dowsing to take tests and figure out multiple <laughs> choice answers. Right. And then, like, scoring incredibly well, like, on tests, but barely actual studying to the point where, like, in high school she was called Miracle Girl for, like, mm-hmm. getting, like, over 80% on, like, a, a test that, like, kids who studied really hard You know, weren't able to do because, like, they changed, like, the formula or, like, how they usually do the test, like, that year... And then later when she went to college and she was doing really well in French, she got 98% on a test without knowing any French just because she knew how to take multiple choice tests so well. Yeah, that was really incredible. (laughs) That was so funny that her French teacher was was like after that calling on her because he thought like she actually knew French. And when she went to go (laughs) cancel the class, he was like, what? But you clearly speak French already. You're clearly so (laughs) passionate. Why? Why are you giving up on this thing you clearly love? And she just I couldn't, like, (laughs) admit the truth. It was so awkward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, Higashimura, Higashimura herself is just really interesting as a person in terms of, like, not only is this experience, like, this relationship she had with her mentor so unique, but, like, everything around it, from, like, her early experiences, like, making friends and, like, drawing comics and art in school, and then, like, all the friendships she made through college and afterward, like, She recounts a lot of really, really great memories and describes them in great detail in such a fun way. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, her humor is such a strength, especially because this is such a rawly emotional work for her, clearly. Like it, the fact that she's able to infuse humor and like have these asides where she's like, oh, my gosh, I never did this thing. I promised my editor I was going to draw a series based on like this manga we mutually enjoyed, but I never ended up doing it. Like 14 years later, <laughs> I'm still drawing like these silly gag comedies. And she draws like the the uncle from uh, Princess Jellyfish in like one of his weird costumes
0: (laughs) (laughs) um i really i really appreciated the moment where she literally uh the 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 one page where she's literally like i wish i had a time machine and someone just comes in yeah yeah actually we do have a time machine and then she uses it yeah
1: the moment where she travels back and punches her past self yeah that was great yeah at all like when she was like Uh, so one of the things that also is super like, really, really hard to read, but also really great to read about this, if you're an artist with art school, it's, like, how she so calls out, you know, young artists for being delusional and having, like, this peter pan syndrome she calls it like being in this fantasy land of like oh i'm gonna go to art school then i'm gonna be an artist and then oh i don't have mm-hmm. any actual plans for the future of how to apply what i've learned and the degree i got to any practical career
0: yeah she really she really just she really just calls out all artists almost
1: yeah it's like mm-hmm. at the beginning of volume street it's like hey all of you who like spend your parents hard-earned money without any plans for the future you guys are all freaking idiots and then she like <laughs> goes to her son and says hey son like please whatever you do if you're gonna study art i'll support you in your future but if you study art please at least study design and her son is like that's okay mom i'm gonna become a special uh, soccer player and then she's like oh you're gonna become an athlete that's much better thank god <sighs> oh, thank god <laughs> Uh, the, the asides with her son are also great. Like, anytime mm-hmm. we flashback to present and see, like, President N'Gashimura and, like, her lifestyle, and then, like, think back about her past self. It's just another great, unique appeal of this series.
0: Yeah, I, um... Something I also really like about uh the series is that, like, obviously it being autobiographical she sometimes brings up like other work she's done like i i, I could have sworn there's a there's a small moment where she mentions like she how she she did a comic about raising her newborn son Yeah,
1: that's her first big hit mama what temperus that's not yeah. been licensed yet but that is like her first like breakout work that's the work that she mentions that she got her first like real big paycheck out of
0: oh even before uh, princess jellyfish yeah, no, that was before Princess Jellyfish. Oh, okay, interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, she d- describes, like, her first work that she did, like, Kisake uh, Yuka-chan, uh, and then, like, she also, like, flashes forward to recount, like, how she felt when she got her first paycheck, and, like, when she broke out with uh, Mama Temperance after, like, you know, ten years of struggling to get to that point. That's like another great aspect about that series is that it shows that Higashimura now, you know, is a super successful artist. And like she begins the series like saying that, "Hey, now, you know, I'm at a point in my career where like I have a lot of manga under my belt. They've been adapted to other mediums. I'm doing really well. But like it was hard starting out, and I was it was a lot of uncertainty. And it took ten years to get to the point where I am now. You know, working mm. at it.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. honestly." Reading this just made me really wish that we had even more of her stuff in English. Cause oh, we... yeah. There's just so much
1: of it that is just not here. We, this is only three works that we have over here Princess Jellyfish, Tatareba Girls, uh, Blank Canvas. And I mean, heck, I mean, I'm so glad Higashimura appreciation has exploded thanks to, you know, Princess Jellyfish getting licensed and released uh, a couple years back. But like, even before that, it was like limb pickings if you were just, like, a fan of Gashimura, you know, but you couldn't read Japanese, because there were only a couple of her stuff being, like, fan translated, even, like, back in the day. Mm-hmm. Like, as I was talking about with, like, Blank Canvas, this was, like, the only utter, like, big series of hers that I could find back then, besides Princess Jellyfish.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, no, she's incredibly horrific, and only a small, really, like, a fraction, almost, of her work is out yeah. in English, which is amazing. Because, you know, Princess Jellyfish is what, ten, fifteen volumes?
1: Yeah. It's about seventeen five. and then they released it in nine over here.
2: Right. And we've got uh Tokyo Tower Eva Girls, which is also really good. Yeah. But yeah, she's got a couple of other, in their, like, long series, too, like uh, mm. Yukibana no Toro, yeah. which I think is, like, a period piece.
1: Yeah, that's the one I think so many people really want to get licensed, and me yeah, too. Yeah, like, I think
2: that's been licensed, like, in France, uh, but yeah. obviously not here.
0: Maybe maybe I should start putting in the Seven Seas polls that I want more Higashimura works.
1: Oh, yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, I hope everyone's been doing that, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. She's just so prolific, and also, like, I like that she explores kind of like the interesting manga connection she's made. Like, in the story, like, one of the other students of Sensei, uh, Sato, also became like a really famous mangaka, like Rena. And then, like, I don't think she really touches upon it, but her younger brother is also a uh, mangaka. He did uh, My Neighbor Seki, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. My
2: Neighbor is. Great, and yeah. when I found that out, I was like mind blown.
1: Mm-hmm. He actually
2: also has a comic, an autobiographical comic that features her pretty strongly about like going out to eat with her. Oh. <laughs> oh, I forget what it's called off the top. Of
1: my oh, head. that'd be amazing because that's another thing that she really like going to all these different restaurants and trying
0: out their cuisine So, like a yeah. food manga
1: about Higashimura or by Higashimura mm-hmm. would be amazing.
0: Yeah, I would. I would love. I would love a foodie manga by higashimura that that just that that sounds like something i think she'd really excel at
1: yeah and if like her friends that she depicts in this series all have really interesting uh, personalities like fatami and like her obsession with flippers guitar and Olive magazine and the fact that she like just bailed from art school you know because she wasn't feeling it and then it's just like i don't know like just goofing off, like, she has, like, a fun kind of personality that, like, is kind of the the more stoic, more, like, level-headed kind of person to, like, kind of bring Kakashimuro down from, like, her flights of fancy, so I like that.
2: Mm-hmm. I love the flash-forwards to their, like, meeting up as adults, and she's like, what? I didn't do that.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I like the, um, I like the delinquent that ended up going yeah, to Spain. Yeah,
1: Imachan! Oh my gosh, like, Mm -hmm. He was so interesting, too, you know, Kohai of Higashimura, like, who is like a delinquent who was held back in class, and then she helped him, like, fit and learn how to finish his own art assignment and then he got into it then he introduced him to sensei and then they fought about like whether nostradamus's predictions the world would come true when he bet 1.5 million yen oh my god and then to the very end hidaka was trying to get him to pay up the 1.5 million yen and he kept avoiding i know and that was such a fun character relationship and then of course it has like a really emotional you know climax to it when of course he was putting on an art exhibit and this is like towards the end of Hadaka since life like a week before he actually passed away and he was in a wheelchair and could barely speak at that point and so he was struggling drawing at this like live art exhibit because he was you know under the pressure he was also going through Islam, but and he was under pressure of, like everyone watching him Hadaka watching him and then Hadaka like beckoned him over and then he Gave him the advice. Like, he gave all his students, like, time and time again. Like, draw. And that was such mm-hmm. a, another emotional gut punch. And just another amazing thing, I think, about Hidaka Sensei, as Hikashimure explores, and as a teacher, is that he was just so supportive and just so encouraging. And, like, just kept hammering in to his students. Like, just draw. Just keep drawing. Just keep going at it. Like, work through, like, this by, you know, drawing. Just remember... What it feels like to draw and mm-hmm. and the enjoyment yeah, of drawing. Yeah, she talks
2: a lot about how much that helped her and how she now like she drew like through her divorce and through yeah like difficult financial periods and everything. Like even when she's she was like, I just cried as I drew, and I'm like, I'm crying as I translate this.
1: So yeah, <laughs>
2: that works out.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. I mean, she yeah, she talks about like. The period after her divorce was like her, you know, darkest period and drawing really helped us through and that's because of Hidaka's encouragement. And so Mm -hmm. this is another scene that was incredibly real to me. And actually, you know, I read this series while I was in art school, but this is before this even happened, which is so incredible to me, like, before like this similar experience happened to me personally. you know and that was like when she was you know in art school she was in the slump she came back home during like the break and she had to finish a couple of pieces to present but she was having so much trouble like drawing them and she just broke down at home that and she just Mm -hmm. like had to admit to her parents like "I, i don't know what to do i can't draw and like and she's just, like, bawling. And, like, I had a very real, very similar experience to that. Mm-hmm. When I came home from break, I also had to finish some assignments. I was under a lot of stress and pressure. And I, you know, at one point, I also just broke down. Like, I, my dad confronted me about, like, mm-hmm. how I was because I was kind of, like, sequestering myself off. And then, like, I just broke down in tears and, like, admitted every, all, like, the problems I was mm-hmm. having. And it was it was really hard, like raw time. And so, I mean, that entire experience of Gashimura is like in art school and this sense of, hey, I finally made it here to like the dream place that I wanted. I worked so hard to get into, but I for some reason, I'm not drawing like I'm not I'm able to draw what I want to draw. And I, you know, procrastinating and trying to find excuses to avoid the problem. But that just making it worse and everything just compounding. Upon each other, and just making it like a really miserable experience, like just making and exploding that imposter syndrome, and just that, you know, sense that you've lost like what you, what was like a cornerstone of what made you you. And Mm -hmm. then just trying after that to kind of recover and regain that love of drawing and that ability to create again. Cause Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I also, like, you know, before I went to art school, I also was drawing so much. In high school and as a kid, I made my own comics. I had that similar problem where I often wouldn't finish them, but I drew pages upon pages. Like I did so mm-hmm. much. And then, you know, going to art school, like, Gashimura, like, it goes into like how but it's some of the classes are like. And those are very similar to like kind of the classes I had. It's like, you know, three hour life drawing sessions, uh, you know, where you draw again and again, like the live models and stuff. And so, I mean, I did a lot of drawing in you know college, of course, especially, you know, going into animation, you have to do so much drawing, but it's mm-hmm. like, at the same time, it was just being in that different place. And also like having like that imposter syndrome of like, you know, feeling you're not good enough and then feeling like you're not drawing the things you want to draw, you know, it, it really, it was like psychologically like damaging.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: so like that entire situation, like that entire second volume, it was like the hardest for me to reread, especially with like those experiences in like in my own purview, because it was like I was just thinking back and having flashbacks to so many things that happened to mm-hmm. me. So it's like, yeah, gosh, Higashimura like very authentically like, depicts the art school experience, especially for you know a particular kind of person who struggled. Gr- Gold going to art school. And so that's why I also appreciate her, you know, calling out like art students who like don't do like go to art school and like don't take advantage of the opportunities or aren't able to like excel seriously because like it is very expensive. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing also that I think that is kind of like a she doesn't outright say, but it's kind of applied is that, I mean, you don't really need to go to art school like to be a great artist because they talk about Hidaka Sensei. Hidaka Sensei uh, never went to art school. Like what's also mm-hmm. really great about him is that he was 29 when he first started like seriously drawing. He learned under a famous oil painter. Uh, but yeah, he never had a perf- you know formal arts experience, but yet he was such a great teacher and was such a great artist and was able to help Higashi grow so much. And uh, similarly, Mm -hmm. her career in manga was pretty much unrelated to anything she did in art school. Like she didn't start drawing manga or like really putting in the work to learn about making manga until after that. So, yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's just a call out from my own end. It's like you don't need to go to art school to be a great artist or excel in art. For sure,
2: <laughs> yeah there's definitely I've seen a lot of uh discussion about like the value of art school versus how expensive it is right now, especially like mm. in the current situation where a lot of schools are going to be like remote,
4: yeah, but they're
2: still charging the same amount, and a lot of people are sort of like, well, if you're not physically there, like making the connections, which I often hear is like a really. One of the big draws of going to art school is connecting with, like, other artists and also people in the industry. hmm And she certainly forms her own little, like, artist, uh...
1: Yeah, she does make friendships. Her little
2: band of artists. And I also, you know, have had my most productive periods of art when I have, like, friends around who are also drawing
1: kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing she touches upon is that art is so collaborative, especially the kind of art she does. Like, it can't be done without the help of friends. So that is really so important.
2: Even after art school when she befriends uh, Ishida Sensei who is hilarious.
1: Yes, oh my god. She's like a real-life Nizuma-kun from Bakuman. Immediately I was reminded of that
2: character. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she actually has at least one manga that's in English, um, Kaka Fukaga. I have not read it yet, but I bought it um, in the Kodasha store. (laughs)
1: oh I gotta check that out
2: I was really interested to read her work after seeing her as a character in Glen Candice because she's
1: hilarious (laughs) and also
2: clearly serves as like a part mentor part just like colleague type of figure
1: party drinking buddy Uh I love like when she goes over to help her out with her uh, deadline and she just sees like her workplace and her assistants are yelling at her for like fog asleep and then she's like so excited to see like artists in, like, a living corpse state, where, like, they're all just dead exhausted mm-hmm. after barely making the deadline.
2: Yeah, she, like, witnessed Deadline Hill for the first time. hmm I should have used that phrase. I, don't I, <laughs> I think I said crunch, which is also, you know, a good thing to call it, but, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, to circle back to that scene where, you know, Hidaka essentially helps her get out of the art like, that was so... The message he had there of like, you know, having her break out of that slump by having her draw what she was familiar with, like draw a self portrait. Like, I Mm -hmm. thought that was so poignant. It's like, hey, draw, remember, like, how you used to draw, draw something that you used to do and remember, like, you can do this, this is familiar to you. So he mm-hmm. really helps her regain her confidence, and then she still has like, of course, that insecurity of posturing. syndrome when she's like bringing like the heavy like canvas to her, you know, college for review, which is another thing I can relate with because you know, in art school, you had to carry around like these huge uh-huh. like canvas pads of like all of this paper you had to draw on, and you had to.
2: Yeah, I only took <laughs> a few like drawing classes, but even then, I had the
1: huge, hoping like
2: uh, wooden thing and it was hefting in down the hill and then back up
1: the hill. Oh, my God. oh my gosh looking that around like walking especially like half an hour to get to class with that super heavy thing like on your back it's also incredibly uncomfortable like to be crammed mm-hmm. in a subway
2: Oh my gosh!
1: Yeah, like the bag you would carry it in is such a weird size, so like it would like you would bump into people, and you'd be like, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, <laughs> it's so big, I'm so sorry." Oh my god! Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like when she's giving her review, and she's like so nervous because she's seeing like the criticism others are doing, she's seeing like the work her peers are done and seeing like, "Oh no, is mine not good enough?" But then she presents it, and then the you know instructors are like, "Hey, not bad." And this is coming after like having, you know, several like review sessions where her work had been like you know criticized and she'd been made to feel like ashamed and bad. So like mm-hmm. that was that was such a really again, relatable, inspiring, encouraging, very real to life moment.
2: Yeah, the uh ego destroying review seems to be a pretty big feature of the art school experience. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's so many interesting things about Blank Campus as Takashima explores. Because mm-hmm. I, I like learning also like her process of like how she like started like drawing manga, and like to me, it's insane that she was able to like draw a rough draft of 24 pages for like her first like manga in like one night. Because that that's mm-hmm. insane turnaround. And then she over Street Night, she sent in like a completed piece to Shueisha and she like used yeah. ballpoint pen because she didn't have or didn't think that like you know yeah, the that regular. Is hilarious. G-penner. She was like, yeah.
3: people must not use these anymore.
1: Thank but you. her work is so good that it won the prize, even though you know it wasn't in the good in good enough quality to publish it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was another amazing thing. And yeah, I like her learning curves, like the. The steps she had to take to kind of figure out how to draw manga properly. And then realize, okay, I need to get help in order to complete this in time. So first, you know, her mom helps her with the scream tones. Then she calls her old friends to help her. And then, yeah, it just grows from there. And yeah, I like that she touches upon, hey, art doesn't get any easier necessarily, you know, the longer things go on because she mentions like even today like it's still really scary and frustrating like when you're inking it's like oh man you mess up sometimes you have to make mistakes but you know now that she's uh you know professional she at least has assistance to pass on a lot of her work too so you know she doesn't Mm -hmm. have to draw like a hundred page chapter by herself which is another insane thing (laughs) that she did
2: yeah That's something I love about this series is that it's, you know, it's personal and it's her journey, but it's also, like, really insightful into the manga creation process and the process of, like, breaking in to the manga industry in Japan and getting published and that kind of thing. Mm
1: -hmm. Especially for that period in time, like, her recounting how she had to, like, rush to the train station Mm -hmm. to have the express train, like, deliver the manuscript to Tokyo. And then also, like, remote meetings with her editors in person and then, like, her second editor, like, trying to convince her and Ishida-san to, like, move to Tokyo so they can have meetings more often. And stuff like yeah. that. And, yeah. yeah. No,
2: that's pretty wild.
1: <laughs> that's a, There's a sense of nostalgia, for sure, that pervades like, you know, the manga in terms of like, not only recounting experiences with sensei and her childhood and Miyazaki, but also... Like her early days as a mangaka. Now, you know, things for her have changed because she mentions, you know, now you can just send the files digitally. And now you Mm -hmm. can do like more remote work at home and have like remote meetings and stuff. So, yeah, I like that kind of look back too about, you know, something that was, I guess, pretty, you know, recent uh, memory, like early 2000s, but still kind of a lifetime away of like thing where things are now. Oh, yeah
2: yeah the the basic process i feel like of like submitting one shots to contests basically until something sticks and then just making more one shots until you get maybe one that's really successful and gets chosen to be a series i feel like that basic process is still very prevalent and you see it a lot in like shonen jump and stuff where you'll see either a one shot or like a series that runs for maybe like 12 chapters and then gets cut. But then maybe that author comes back with another series kind of thing. So it's really cool to see that side of it. And also really kind of motivated me to make more comics and more one shots and that kind
3: of thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, same here. Like, I mean, rereading any like story about making art always gets me. Like, so remotivated to draw, like, yeah. so much again. And, yeah, I mean, I-, I can definitely relate to Higashimura's post-graduation experience, too, of, like, kind of being uncertain where I would go next. But then, like, kind of managing to luck out with a job where I could still, like, do some art. And now yeah. I'm also kind of in a place like Higashimura where I'm also kind of teaching, like, younger kids about, like, making videos and stuff. and like, what I do now. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> again, like, the more, like, I grow, the more, like, experiences to Gashimuras that I find I can relate to, which I really like.
2: hmm Yeah, each time you reread it, maybe each time you get, like, closer to her age as she's writing it, I feel like you relate to more things. I think maybe the first time I read it, I was like, how could she act like this? And, like, he's so <laughs> selfish. And then, <laughs> as I'm Uh, rereading it and translating it in the present I'm like I was also like that (laughs) Um, now I'm relating to more the parts where it cuts to her like banging her hand on the table and she's crying it like I can't believe I did that Mm.
0: I do like that idea of like of younger readers just reading this and being like she became a manga artist she's famous what how did that happen
1: (laughs) yeah Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I mean, I think that's another really great thing about the story is that so many of the success stories you hear often are like about people who break out as huge successes while they're really young. And like, you don't really hear about like the struggles, like pretty much all artists go through to get to where they are and to get to that successful place they are.
4: Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. Agashimura
1: is kind of like demystifying like her own like uh, mystique there because she's like, you know, incredibly successful now, and she's, like, like, so cool, like, she has, like, uh, her old podcast, she's, like, really, very famous, but, like, she's, like, talking about, like, her obscure period, like, her days where she wasn't sure whether she would be able able to become a mangaka, and, like, how, like, her earliest work was, like, rejected. I mean, like, she talked about some of her early stories that she uh, tried to do after, like, her initial one, you know, won the prize, and like, they were, like, kind of these high-concept, like, very arty type of stories, like the one about mm-hmm. the siblings who were in love with each other, but they never actually say it. Like, the type of manga where, like, a straw hat flies in the wind. Yeah. <laughs> and she has to learn, like, oh, no, just tell, like, a very clear story that is, like, true to you that readers will get. And so she draws something, like, based on her own experiences working at the call center and you know with protagonists that resemble her and nishimura her boyfriend so Mm -hmm. yeah and then kind of from there it's like an interesting thing to look at of like how she infuses her stories with like her personal experiences and like how her stories are very personally charged but also she has to kind of match the times of hey you gotta make this work a little more trendy like you have to be looking to like being more fashionable to appeal to, like, the audience that we're hitting with this magazine. So that mm-hmm. learning curve, too, is very interesting to learn about. Yeah. But I mean, speaking of her boyfriend, Ishimurka, and another thing that I really thought was so funny was how she mentioned that, like, all her, like, male pretty protagonists are based off of him. And I was like, oh my god, yeah, because he looked exactly like Hanamori from his Princess Delia. Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: yeah, that, 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 that took me a bit to make that connection. But yeah, that was... Uh- I thought that was pretty good.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I like yeah, those little Yeah, that's details. so true to you, because I feel like I, I have done that, like, when I was younger. All of my, like, romance comics bore mysterious resemblances to like, my boyfriend at the time. And I also have other friends who, like, make comics and I'll read their comics, and I'm like, isn't this just your partner?
3: <laughs> um, Totally <laughs> happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I really love about all of Gashimer's work is that she puts so much of herself and her pers- uh, perspective and uh, personality into it. Like, one of the reasons that I really loved Princess Jellyfish were, you know, not just the story itself was amazing, but also her autobiographical, like, comics at the end of every volume were also equally incredibly entertaining and reinforced the themes of the series. And, you know, you learn more about, like, where she's coming from and, like, her idea process. And that kind of, like, gave you a great sense of her as a creator and, like, what she was doing with that series and also Mm -hmm. revealed, like, a lot of what she was writing, like, her interest in fashion her interest in, like, you know, these characters who just speak their mind, rage against the world for being, like, hard to understand or Mm -hmm. even being frustrated at people and themselves or being, like, difficult. Yeah, I, I like how, you know, very vocal that personality of hers is in all of her work. Like, everything is so emotionally charged coming from like things that she is interested in and things she wants to express to the reader. And like, this of course is like the purest example of that as like an autobiographical manga of her, like just laying all her like rawest emotions out there about like her regret and guilt about her relationship with her. But also like all trying relating, like what he means to her, all the fun times he had i mean they had with each other and you know how he like really helped her in her career path and just that nostalgic effect of remembering someone she really loved who is you know gone now so yeah
3: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah and on the topic of her process she mentions um as she's coming up on one of the tougher parts of the story that she often drew blank canvas either like just barely planned it out right before yeah. starting it, before the deadline, or in some cases even just went straight into doing the sketches without making thumbnails at all, Yeah, that's, uh, which
1: is pretty amazing. That is amazing. Like, she didn't draw storyboards for it often. Like, And she would draw, like, basically two days before the deadline, she would just sketch it out. Like, very stream mm-hmm. of consciousness. And yeah, I think that's, it makes
2: it feel like it's, like, very much coming straight from the heart. Like Yeah. Really.
1: Yeah, like she just lets herself like draw the story like as she's remembering it and thinking it, mm-hmm. it up. And I think that also leads to like some of those fun asides that she goes into, like the tangents she would go into. Uh like again about like remembering, "Oh my god, I promised this editor like, you know, we both love mutually love this manga. I wanted to make a manga like that. Oh my god, I never did." Like that stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again,
1: that's like another huge appeal of this is that like it is just very, you know, laying it all out there like no, no pretenses, no holding anything back, just everything as she remembers it.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting because I feel like um, these autobiographical comics are fairly prevalent in the like indie comic scene in the English speaking like indie comics. A lot of people do really frank autobiography. But you don't see as much of it in manga, or at least you don't see as much of that, like, get translated. I think with, like, the rise of Pixiv and, like, My Lesbian Experience, we're seeing a big uptick in that kind of comic, especially Mm -hmm. being, like, translated over here. But this was one of the first, I think probably one of the first autobiographical manga that I read. And it just, like, really cut to the core and made me think about, like, what you can do with comics.
1: Yeah. For sure. I mean, I I really appreciate autobiographical stories because of like, how personal the experience they relate are. And because they're coming from such an authentic place, like if you are someone who's gone through a lot of those same struggles, like it is really encouraging to see, hey, here's this person, like they also struggled. But they found mm-hmm. their way, and now they're telling their story. And so you are not alone. And there is also, yeah. you know, a big future ahead of you you don't know about yet that you mm-hmm. should look forward to and be excited about. You know, we'll yeah, keep working. Yeah, which is
2: an especially powerful message from someone as, like, successful as Maria Yeah. Not that it isn't also powerful to see other people, like, who are sort of currently at the same stage as you are, but making comics about getting through it and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: It's actually, it's been an interesting experience getting to translate it because I'm also in, like, the indie comic scene a bit in, like, America and, you know, the English-speaking side. Um, there's been an unusual overlap because most of my indie comics peers and like, France, uh, they read manga, but they're not as into manga as they are like deep in the indie comics scene but because this comic is about making comics and making art a lot of um my friends in indie comics and like people that I really look up to in indie comics were really interested in seeing this come out in English and are like posting about buying it or like when they first announced that it was that seven season licensed it and I announced that I was translating it I had a lot of like both peers and um Idols, for lack of a better word, really like uh role models in the indie comic scene. All being like, "Oh, I can't wait to read this in English," and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like it was a rush, and it was also a lot of pressure because I'm like, the people who make comics that I love are going to be reading my translation of this comic.
1: <laughs> That's so awesome!
2: Yeah, it was also a lot of like pressure, but it was really, really cool to be able to uh, have that connection and talk to people about it at comic conventions and stuff.
1: Yeah. And again, I'm so thankful to you and the team at Seven Seeds for bringing the comic out over here. Because, again, it's just such a personal story that is so relatable for, like, artists, especially comics artists, and people who went to art school. But even in general, I think that Higashimura's experiences of being, like, kind of a flaky teen who really didn't know who, like who had big dreams for a future but like went through a period of her life where she wasn't really working towards it and wasn't really sure of whether she would be able to achieve that dream like I think that experience is very universal to a lot of people mm-hmm. and I think she goes into a lot of universal experiences in terms of like her relationship with her parents so like how sometimes they would like bother her or get her on her case or push her to like take a job or whatever, stuff like that, or uh, her, again, like a huge part of this manga is her, you know, kind of exploring her feelings of grief, and uh, exploring the feelings of, you know, uh, the memory of a dead loved one, so that's also Mm -hmm. something just so, you know, personal and relatable for pretty much, I think everyone has had, you know, an experience like that, and so Mm -hmm. I think that's just another incredibly valuable thing about the story, too, that, you know, makes... The way she tells it, like, as a tribute to him, and then, you know, the kind of conclusion she released to, like, what lessons and what things that he created that, like, still are a part of her everyday life, like, how meaningful that is to her. Mm -hmm. I think that's just so beautiful. Like, just even if someone, you know, in our lives is gone, like, there are still memories of them that help us keep moving forward. They're, like, artifacts they've left uh, behind. That we look at and we can remember them fondly. And again, that is just so, so meaningful, I think. Just such a great point to make about uh, accepting debt and thinking about like past loved ones. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, oh gosh, there's just so much to gush. It's just, it's a short manga, but it's just so packed full of like memories and like experiences that it's like, (laughs) there's <laughs> so much to talk about, but I think we did a good job of, like, going over the broad strokes and, like, even a lot of specific moments that really stick out. I mean, is there any other moments you guys want to bring out that, like, really spoke to you in terms of, like, not just the memory itself that Higashimura is exploring, but also, like, kind of the message from that?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, there's definitely the part in volume five um and this is like an especially rough one but the scene her last meeting with sensei and how like it was such a short and mundane thing that she barely even remembers what happened that's such a painful and real thing because oh gosh yeah uh whether it's a loved one who's passed away or even just someone that you like lose touch with for whatever reason it is sort of as cliche as it is it's a reminder that you never know when like this might be the last time that you see someone. Yeah. And there's not always, like, a, um, you know, a dramatic, like, final scene of closure where you, you know, tell them how you felt about them and they leave their meaningful last words. Sometimes it's just like, oop, I gotta go, they didn't get my manga, so I have to, like, I'll come back and see you soon, I gotta go send this. It's like, yeah, okay. And that's it.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. She makes a point of it. Like life doesn't work out like it does in movies or manga. You don't often get Mm -hmm. that last goodbye with someone. You or be there for like uh, their final moments or even just sometimes when you say goodbye to someone, you don't see them again ever. Like people go in and out of her life. Like she mentions like earlier, like her college friends, like she didn't see them for like 18 years until she went back to give a speech there. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just people often, like, go in and out your lives, and you don't really realize, like, last time you'll see them.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, that particular experience with, uh, you know, seeing Hidaka and, like, thinking nothing of it, thinking, like, oh, I'll just go back and see him another time. I have to get going. And, like, coming back and, like, oh, no, there is not going to be a next time. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I-, I talked about it before, but, yeah, had an experience like that, too. So,
4: man.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's so many... There's just so many moments of, like, really deep regret, Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: I think we definitely all have a lot of those moments. Um, and there's not necessarily some big moral, which I think is something else that's good about it, is that she doesn't necessarily try to moralize and be like, this is why you need to treasure people while you have them, or that kind of thing. She's just Mm -hmm. like, this is what happened, and I can't change it, and all I can do is write down, like, these feelings about it. Oh, God. I'm gonna get choked up. Smog is dangerous.
0: Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, yeah. I, just to kind of piggyback off of that. Yeah, I, I don't really have any particular moments that stand out, but I mean, I guess, I guess, even saying that, like, I really did appreciate the moments where where Higashimura, you know, thinks back on particular moments with Hidaka Sensei, and she just thinks you know just in general like oh man like i should have really like i just enjoy how introspective she is about like uh how she should have maybe cherished certain moments or how she could have like treated Hidaka sensei better for some reason the, the the moment that comes to mind is uh when when they're out like at a food stall and he gets her like this giant pitcher of beer yeah mhm and she just thinks about how, like, she didn't drink any of that and how. Just a sip, yeah. Yeah, how her current self de- definitely would have drank some of it. So just, just so- something about that, something about that moment really stood out to me. And just like how it's, it's like such a small, mundane thing, but like you can kind of feel the regret that she has while, you know, thinking back on that moment and just all the, All the little small moments with her spending time with Hidaka Sensei outside of the art studio, in general.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's just again, just such a personal work that's really just about her. She's not trying to like use her story with Hidaka Sensei to like get at a broader message for the Mm -hmm. for the like reader that she wants to be like didactic about. Like it's maybe something that she wants to express, like, hey, this is my regrets with my relationship with this person I cared about, maybe that will resonate with you but it's really about her just working through those memories and those feelings if there's Mm -hmm. any point where she is like directly calling out the reader it is for like perspective and current like art students and artists who are like maybe struggling or like not taking their craft seriously where she's like oh I'm so (laughs) frustrated about this hey you don't be like me and waste your time at art school which I also very appreciate that call out
3: (laughs)
2: Mhm. Yeah, she can she can be pretty harsh both on herself and on artists
3: in general, at times. mm mm-hmm. Mhm.
1: But yeah, it's amazing like she covers about a 7-8 year period of her life and so much happens in it and in such a, and it's told in such a condensed amount in like just these, you know, 150 page, you know, five volumes. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I again, There's so much to the story. And of course, there's so much to everyone's lives. And I mean, I'm really grateful that, you know, she was comfortable sharing like such a personal story with us. And yeah, I'm grateful to you for uh, (laughs) translating it and having to like deal with uh, and translate Higashimura's like very raw personal (laughs) feelings, like up close and personal.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm incredibly grateful that I had the opportunity to do so. And translate, like, such an amazing work by, like, really one of my favorite Mandaka, one of the most inspiring artists that I know of. Um, and I'm grateful to everyone who, you mentioned the Seven Seas, uh, surveys earlier, Colton, and I think that everyone submitting that series every month asking for it, and, you know, I think everyone asking for it so much really is why we were able to do it and why I was able to do it.
3: Mm. Wow.
2: So I'm really grateful to all of the fans who recommended it and suggested it as well.
1: That's awesome. And I hope that fans will continue to suggest more Higashimura manga for Seven Seas the License, and I hope you get a chance to work on another one as well.
2: Yeah, I hope so too.
1: Yeah. And again, uh, I think if it wasn't clear already, we highly recommend this series. Like, again, even if you're not an artist and didn't go through the experiences that Akashimura has, like, there's, there's so much about the stories that is universal that will speak to you if you're like, you know, a young person just struggling to make it in the world and also dealing with, you know, feelings about debt and stuff. So there's just... A lot to relate with and enjoy. And in general, Higashi and Mura's manga are all awesome. They're all incredibly funny and beautifully drawn. So you gotta read it on that level alone. And I wanna shout out our friend Brandon, who says, you know, as a design school dropout and bird art artist, this manga was such a gut punch in the best ways. So yeah, I think that.
3: Brandon. I love Brandon.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Brandon's awesome. <laughs> um,. Yeah, I think this might even be good for, uh, I mean, even if you're not already, like, a fan of Higashimura, this might be, I mean, you know, this this, this might be a good first manga to even start off with, barring, you know, Princess Jellyfish or Tokyo Tower mm-hmm. Rabbit Girls. For yeah, sure.
2: It'll definitely add another level to your awareness as you're, because now when you read, when I read her other works now, you know, it almost feels as though you know her a little bit and- When you see her in, like, the afterwards and stuff, you're like, oh, there she is. Like, (laughs) still yelling and screaming and banging her head on the wall. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Yeah. But it
2: really has, like, so many levels of appeal. Like, the emotional story and also, like, just the general insights to the creation process in her career. Mm -hmm. And also, I don't think we've even mentioned this, but her art for the actual series is also, like, beautiful. Oh, Yeah. It's very like kind of understated and delicate and like just just amazing. So for me, it was inspirational on like so many levels.
1: Yeah, like the covers especially are just so striking and so yeah,
2: they're gorgeous,
1: beautifully illustrated. I don't know. I think they're watercolor. Like Mm -hmm, that's what
2: they look like to me.
1: Yeah, and of course, I love Higashimura's art. Like, her gestures and her expressions are so great. Like, especially when Mm -hmm. she plays into the comedy. But also, like, her backgrounds in the series, when we do visit a new place and she, like, renders, like, the beauty of it. Like, uh, in the first volume, when she's taking uh, the trip to Kanazawa, and she's, like, seeing, like, the snow-covered landscape, and she's, like, just mystified at it. Like that is just mm-hmm. a beautifully drawn image, for sure. Yeah,
2: and of course, like um, her renderings of Miyazaki and Sensei's classroom and the forest yeah. surrounding it. She mentions in one of the afterwards that she like went back and took a bunch of reference pictures, and it really shows.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, like, how yeah, it definitely she shows. Was. Like she puts so much detail into those depictions. I mean, when you first see Sensei's classroom, like there's just so much there to look mm-hmm. at in terms of all the paintings on the walls all the sculpture heads and uh mounts and the easels it's like she's really remembering like every nook and cranny of that space and it's just really mm-hmm. wonderful to look at
2: yeah no it's
1: incredible
3: mm-hmm.
1: Higashimura is such a brilliant artist and storyteller i so want more of her manga to be translated I mean, speaking of autobiographical works, I hope Mama Temperance gets translated. That would be really interesting to read, especially yeah. coming after this. But yeah, I mean, just anything, please. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: I would really, um, and this is a personal and slightly selfish desire, but I would love to see her as a guest at a U.S. con someday. Yes! Uh, because obviously I would love to meet her and I would love to hear her speak about her process and everything.
0: Um, oh she yeah. actually
2: has a podcast of her own, mm-hmm. obviously in Japanese, but she mentioned at one point an exchange that I had with someone on Twitter about wanting to translate it. And she like she and her co hosts like reenacted that exchange <laughs> on her <laughs> podcast, so that was wild.
1: That's amazing.
3: But yeah.
2: Um, as translators we don't often get to interact with the artist Slash author. So I would really love that chance someday.
3: Ooh, wow, that's oh, wow. Oh, for cool. sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But I guess that was, you know, sort of a brush with the artist.
1: <laughs> wow, that's incredible. To be, like, mentioned on Agashimura's own podcast
2: mm-hmm. is very strange. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, I'm drawing a blank on more things to say about blank canvas. So. Uh- <laughs> I think we'll head up into our wrap-up of this show. Jenny, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experiences with us and talking about Blank Canvas with us.
2: Yes, thank you again for having me. It's one of my favorite series that I've been able to work on, so I always appreciate the chance to talk about it. And I only almost cried once, so I think we did pretty <laughs> good.
1: Yeah, I'm glad I managed to hold it together too, because so <laughs> I'll be rest assured I did definitely tear up reading the manga several times.
2: <laughs> yeah, oh, I I cried quite a few times while translating it, especially when I was on the last volume, I had to tell my husband, like, just so you know, <laughs> if you see me crying a lot for the next week, it's because I'm working on the very emotional to a very
0: emotional series. It's It's okay, honey, I'm at work.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you just worked years. Oh, uh,
1: yeah, that's so awesome! But yeah, I mean, Jenny, to share like where people can find you, where people can uh check out like all the stuff you're doing, including the comics that you've drawn. Like, where can people find you?
2: Oh man, um don't look at my comics right after reading this. <laughs> <laughs> it'll <laughs> pale in comparison.
1: No, no, they're still really good.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at jlmkr. I'm on uh, Instagram as well, and I have a separate Instagram for some of my comics at evening comics. I think. Obviously, we don't have any convention appearances to plug right now, but I am trying to work on a book of my Japanese journal-like uh, autobiographical comics. So, if you enjoy autobiographical comics like Blank Canvas, this one's less likely to make you cry. But I did try to make it. Fun and informative, so I'll uh, definitely be posting on Twitter as
1: I'm working on that. Awesome, awesome! Looking forward to that. And I also Thank want to you. shout out, of course, you know your old podcast translator tea time. Like, I like again, I really enjoy listening to that. Gosh,
2: yeah, that was very fun.
1: Yeah, and I enjoyed the translator tea time times two series too, and the uh, you know conversation you had with Stephen Ball. So that was also really great. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Justin over at OASG is really great at organizing stuff like that. Um, us translators don't normally go out of our way to be social as a general <laughs> rule, but I always really love the chance to talk to other translators and hear about their um you know, process. So both doing Tea Time with Amanda and talking to Stephen Paul about his uh work during uh Translator Tea Times too, was all really awesome and i feel like i probably embarrassed myself a little but you know no,
1: really no it was a great conversation <laughs> i thought you guys had and yeah i mean i always like talking to translators on the show and again it's always really fun to learn about like the work you guys do and some of the unique experiences you've had translating all the different series that you've done
2: mhm yeah this was definitely an especially unique one since it combined my My translation and my work and knowledge in comics so it was a really great privilege to be able to work on it
1: awesome again thank you so much and now that we've kind of finished our podcast finished this piece i think it's time to begin a new page and head into the wrap-up of our show thanks Thanks again to Jenny for coming on the show to talk with us about Blank Canvas. It was a wonderful time revisiting the series and hearing her thoughts on it and Higashimura and working on it. It was just such a wonderful conversation and yeah I always love being able to discuss Higashimura's works on the show and hope to do it again and hope to talk with Jenny again about so many of the other manga that she's worked on because there's plenty that we'd love to discuss on the show oh yeah and before we get into community shout outs i do want to address a question that came to us about blank canvas a little after we had recorded the podcast but i wanted to just answer it this comes to us from zara a mutual mine off twitter and she asked you know how does Blank Canvas compare to other Higashimura manga out there in English in terms of its themes and reader impact? And from my perspective, considering the manga that are available, Princess, Jellyfish, Tokitata, Girls, and this, All about young women at a crossroads in life, kind of trying to figure out what they want to do in order to pursue happiness, and whether they have the ability to put themselves out there to attain and achieve that. So I think they're all really coming of age stories in a way, or really stories of maturity and growth, of being confident in yourself and your ability, and Kind of not being afraid to stand up against social pressures and expectations of what you should or can do and defy those to prove yourselves and express yourself for your truest self, your innermost self. You know, really allow yourself to be seen for who you are. I think that is especially evident in Princess Jellyfish with its fashion motifs, but I think that rings true as well in Titled Epic Girls and Blank Campus. Of course, these series also deal with some kind of more problems of just being like a young adult in the world and just having the ghost your life and those challenges and travails. So I think Blind Canvas, especially, you know, is a great exploration, not a very realistic one, considering it's an autobiography of like Higashimura just kind of flailing about until she finally is able to just get her act together and just manages one day to start working towards what she wants to do and eventually gets there. So I think that also rings true in these other three as well, is that a lot of times we see the protagonist kind of languishing, not really sure of what direction they're going in. And then finally, just someday they just start a little bit at a time working towards their goal and what they want out of life and what they want to do. And eventually, through that hard work and persistence, they get there. So I think that's what uh, really appeals to me. And I think there's a lot more commonalities and themes that you could really compare across the works. And I think that'd be a great conversation to have in the future, just, I got some more focused podcast of just the themes across the works. But I think I'd really want to refresh myself more on all the series before doing that.
0: Hmm. You definitely said it as, as best as we could, I definitely agree there. I, I think that's part of the reason why I like Higashimura's works as well so far. Because obviously, I've only read this in Princess Jellyfish, and I'm from what I've heard of, like Tokyo Reba Girls. I think obviously it re- relates to what we're discussing here about just you know b- becoming an adult and flailing around until y- you kind of get it just right. You know, basically, or I guess specifically with like Blank Canvas. But I I think that kind of also well to
1: our rebel girls too because young women in their thirties dealing with the pressures of oh we're single do we need to get married yeah like do we have to deal with this societal pressure on us and then we're stuck in these dead end jobs that we don't really like and all this other bullshit <laughs> <laughs> that comes with living so
0: no yeah that yeah. that's true but uh yeah I I I mean I I think you hit the nail. You hit the hidden nail on the head there. I don't. I don't really have much else to add there, other uh, other than I. I agree. So
1: absolutely. And now I'd like to share some community shoutouts. We mentioned it in the podcast, but Jenny wrote a primer on Yuri for Am Feminist about four years ago, and she presents a great case for why the genre should be taken seriously in feminist and queer critical circles, debunking common misconceptions of the genre, discussing its diversity in both creators and content, why the Class S-style high school set stories still have a lot of resonance to older readers, and why the idealized worlds of Yuri are just as valuable as more realistic queer stories. Jenny's love and passion for Yuri shines through, and it's definitely a great piece to read if you missed it when it was first published. Moving on to more conversations about the work of manga translators, I'll also re-recommend listening to Translator Times 2 a three-episode podcast miniseries in which pairs of translators interview each other about their work and experiences. Jenny was on the same episode as WinPiece translator Stephen Paul, and they discussed their starts in the industry, how they maintain a work-life balance and schedule as freelancers working from home, how they deal with gender ambiguity and pronouns, and comparing how different light novel translation is compared to manga translation, among us other anecdotes like Jenny sharing a story about when she got an email from a so-called fan criticizing her Nichudo translation as being too faithful, and then linking her to an error-filled scamlation, and then sending a follow-up message apologizing for somehow not realizing they'd written their original email in French. Similarly, the other two podcasts in the series have really fun and insightful interviews. Emily Balastrary with Jake Jung and Jennifer O'Donnell with Cassie Mercat. The Emily and Jake interview discusses topics like getting credit for your work, getting feedback from editors, and some of the experiences they've been able to have thanks to their work, like Emily interviewing Carla Zen and Jake being invited to the Red carpet premiere of the Made in movie. The Jennifer and Cassie Allen interview also discusses getting feedback, working for a shady and incompetent company, having to redo other people's bad translation jobs from scratch, and handling burnout and imposter syndrome. All three episodes paint a really wonderfully broad overview of what the career of a manga translator is like, and their experiences really hammer home the hard work that goes into translating its career and whether labor shouldn't be taken for granted. Other groups have also been endeavoring to promote the stories and experiences of translators. Speaking of Emily, non-native creative recently did an interview with him going over his translation career and discussing other personal topics, like why he loves the work of Morimi, who is the writer of Totama Galaxy and *Sure Walking Girl, the latter of which Emily translated, and what it was like getting to translate the original novel Kiki's delivery service based on, among other stories about the works that is translated. And Non-Native Creative does a lot of great interviews in general, interviewing people working in industries across borders, a variety of fields. And you should check out their channel for more fascinating interviews with people who have been able to move and work internationally in their field of choice. And you should also be following the Japanese translators of New York City Group, who are continuing to do great interviews, spotlighting the work of translators in their career journeys. Their most recent interview was with Andrew Hodgson, a multimedia translator who has done work on visual novels, light novels, anime, manga, and more. Hodgson shares some great anecdotes from his experiences, like the origins of his internet handle Steiner, deriving from Steins Gate. And then we got to start translating first to a fan project for that series, and then later working on it in official capacity. Other great stories from him include describing the tumultuous situation of the Diaz of A Kickstarter and having to step in to communicate with the Japanese licensors on behalf of that company who was running it because they were completely misinterpreting their emails and then they were hired by them to be a brand ambassador for like five months before the company went compute out of nowhere and then he also talks about some of the strange decisions he's made as a translator. Why giving a random character he thought would only have a minor role in a light novel, a Scottish accent, only for them to become regularly recurring, and then inexplicably translating the name of a cat in that same light novel series, originally called Nyantado, as Garfield. <laughs> And he also shares some insights on what working with a relatively new manga books or books is like, which by all accounts sounds like they have a really reliable staff and where to we'll work from, which is great to hear. Hudson also discusses the stresses of working from home, fighting on procrastination and taking on too much work than you can handle, and suffering for it later, among other interesting topics. Hudson's multimedia experiences translated for different mediums and the respective challenges they bring is really interesting to hear about. And overall, the conversation is just incredibly lively, passionate, and fun. Like, there's one point where there's some formatting slash technical difficulties, when Hodgson is bringing up a style guy, he's just screaming what? Really loudly to the point where Christie tried to get him to calm down, and it was very, very funny. Definitely a great interview, both to learn about different facets of the translation world, as well as for its spontaneous, hilarious moments. And my final shout out for this episode is not a translator interview, but keeping in line with the career journey team of these shout outs is another great interview sharing someone's incredible career journey. And that is the leveling up with Benjamin Banks' podcast interview with Boba Lingsley, the veteran actor known best by anime fans as the narrator in Outlaw Star and in Cowboy Bebop as Jet Black. Both life story is just so fascinating from his Time in high school and college playing football and then turning down... Entering the NFL to go to military, then his service in the military, taking him to be stationed in Germany and performing in plays there, including starring in the lead role of Dracula, and then entering law school and having a law career, and then doing TV and radio work, and then eventually finding his way into voice acting, and then him discussing of his fair acting experiences, including Viva, but also the short lived Nickelodeon show just Jordan, and he also discusses on weighty topics like taking his hand against the weave non-war back in the day as a soldier, and then the importance of supporting diversity in the boys acting world, and of course the Black Lives Matter movement and how that has affected him and Banks and Trav and D you know, they hosted a really wonderful interview with Bo that really touched upon so many incredible moments from his life and career, and it's an absolute must listen if Bo's roles ever left an impression on you, or if you just want to hear about a really fascinating man's incredibly fascinating life. Speaking of Benjamin Banks' podcast, I was actually invited on a show recently to discuss The Promised Neverland Season 1, and I had a blast revisiting it and discussing it with the crew. I want to thank them again for inviting me, encourage you all to check out our conversation on The Promised Neverland, which I think we touched on a lot of key points about the series' themes and characters, and just check out their entire podcast catalog in general. They've recently surpassed 100 episodes over two years, they have a ton of great discussions about all sorts of anime and manga and interviews with tons of other great actors and industry folk like another recent interview to theirs is kylie bear which also was really really fascinating and fun so definitely check out their work they were a really great podcast and with those community shout outs shout it out i think it is time to Put a drape on this canvas and call it quits for the day. Unlike Mangaka, I don't think we need to go through the night tirelessly talking on and on. I think it's time to take a good rest and come back refreshed for the next podcast.
0: No, instead of talking all night, sometimes we just edit all night. No, I don't don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I try not to do that. I don't think I'd really do that anymore, actually. I used to spend very long nights editing like episodes of Life Lessons back in the day, but uh, I actually have a pretty good working schedule in terms of like editing this podcast and how much I allow myself to kind of do that every day. So those long, tireless nights of editing are way behind me at this point. I have a healthier schedule. But uh, before we get into any of our stuff, I, once again, just another reminder as we inch ever so closer to episode 150, that our survey is still open. You can find a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Uh, we really want to hear your feedback on a few specific things, but just to generally like, you know, uh, what your favorite like guests from the podcast were, your favorite episodes, favorite thumbnails, moments, all that kind of stuff, because obviously we are going to be celebrating our 150th episode of the podcast by not only talking about our survey results, but also just kind of talking about the podcast in general, because soon enough we will have been doing this podcast for five years. And I can't believe that at all. So yeah, our survey will be open until January 31st. Uh, so by the time this episode is out, uh, you still have just enough time to take it. If, uh, if you haven't already and, uh, just in general, we, we would really appreciate your feedback on, uh, on what we, what we can do better for the podcast, or, you know, just a general. Any, any feedback is good feedback as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, again, just take that survey while you still can. But until then, Lum, where can the good people find you?
1: You can find me at Lombomiasha on Twitter. It's Lombomiasha variety of places like Animation Revelation and List, Wherever there's a Lombomiasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my manga reviews on alldashcounter.com. we got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out, so look forward to more on there. And if you like the art I do for this show, you can check out my Instagram for all of that stuff. All my art
0: at artworks. All right. But as for me, I'm Colting. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. Uh, I also do other... F- a lot of other podcasts on the side, uh, which you can find links to over at ColtonCorner.wordpress.com. I have a page dedicated to whatever podcasts I'm doing that I will not list here because that's why I have a page where you know you guys can just take a look at all the po- other podcasts I'm doing. It would take way too much extra time to just list all them here. Again, that's at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Uh Check out my other shows. But as for Manga Mavericks and All AllComic. Uh, you can find every episode of the Manga Mavericks podcast over on AllComic.com That's where we post every episode first unless you are a patron of ours at Patreon at Patreon.com slash Manga Mavericks We're at the $2 tier If you sign up for that tier you will get early access to specific podcasts whenever we have them uh, edited early uh, Sometimes we will have podcasts edited way earlier than when they're supposed to be when we put them up on our main feed, I should say. And so, yeah, you know, for Blank Canvas in particular, uh, you could have listened to this months ahead of time because sometimes our scheduling is pretty whack and sometimes we have to reschedule things. But, yeah, that's another good reason why we have the Patreon is uh, so you can listen to these uh, podcasts before anyone else uh, so you don't have to wait that long before they go up on our main feed. Or you could sign up for a $5 tier where we post – a new monthly bonus podcast at the end of every month. Right now, our latest monthly bonus podcast you can listen to is our Shonen Jump retrospective of the year 2020. Uh, We had a really good time talking to our good friend Maxi Bernard of Friendship Effort Victory uh, just talking about the past year of Shonen Jump. And I mean, that podcast in particular, you know, if you sign up for the Patreon for even as low as a dollar, you'll actually get access to it. Again, as our special thanks to all of our patrons for supporting us over the past year. But again, we had a lot of fun going over the past year of Shonen Jump, talking about everything we read and everything that ended over the past year. Uh, it's a really fun podcast, and I can't wait to do it again next year. Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, an almost three-hour podcast is waiting for you uh, if you just sign up for our Patreon again at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, we really appreciate all the support. It really helps support the show and everything that we do here. And so, yeah, if you basically, if you want to support us, uh, the best way to do it is at our Patreon at patreon.com slash Manga Mavericks. But as for everything else, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks in particular, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks or at Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks, uh, where we have different excerpts of the podcast and sometimes even some exclusive content every once in a while. So again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Subscribe to us. Email us at manga mavericks at gmail.com. What do you think about Blank Canvas and and Higashibura's other works? Do you have anything that uh, you want us to read on the show? Is there anything you're reading that you want to tell us about? Again, emails anything about manga or the podcast or or whatever else at at gmail.com and we'll read your emails on the show. We love getting emails. So send them to us. Uh, but the most important thing guys is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, we're on a bunch of different platforms. But uh you know, on Apple Podcasts in particular, uh leaving us a rating and a review not only are you giving us, you know, helpful feedback for the show, Uh, But it really helps the visibility of our show on that platform as well. Uh, So please leave us a rating and a review if you so wish. Uh, We really appreciate everything that we receive there. But yeah, that's going to be about it for the show. Uh, This has been episode 148 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. And we will see you guys next time for episode 149. Bye, guys. Sayonara!